Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. again to the Explaining History podcast and in this episode I'm going to look at the concept of the Communist Party during the Stalinist era and the relationships or just some of the relationships that the party had with the wider population. During the Stalinist era the vast majority of ordinary citizens come to see the state and the party that is inextricably intertwined with the workings of uh, state machinery as a thing to be avoided, to be navigated around, to be negotiated with, and to some extent to be infiltrated. The state, this vast monolithic uh, machine uh, in the lives of ordinary Soviet citizens, is largely an obstacle not a thing of any great affection. And this is because state power in the lives of Soviet citizens is arbitrary, and Soviet citizens would normally have encountered the state in the guise of uh, corrupt or incompetent bureaucrats and uh, officials, um, the little Stalins of Soviet life, the little Jobsworths, um, the Clarks and the uh, shop assistants and salesmen who were state employees, all of whom had little invested in any kind of public service and more invested in their own personal advancement through the systems and structures and hierarchies of Soviet life. By the time the Stalin's theory begins in 1928, it's generally the rule of thumb where people see it beginning as it, it does rather emerge throughout the late 1920s, the um, Soviet regime has been around for 11 years, and during that time, a considerable portion of that time, um, has been uh, fighting the civil war and other national conflicts, and of course fighting in places such as Poland. And so the generation of 1917 is still around. Uh, obviously by the time we get to 1936, 1937, that's going to be a different proposition altogether. But the parties still viewed themselves as revolutionaries as opposed to anything else. And they were still engaged on a revolutionary mission of building socialism, which meant the transformation of, the rapid transformation of Russian society. This would not only mean an economic transformation of Russian society, but a social and cultural one as well, as the 19, uh, late 1920s and early 1930s see uh, a cultural revolution happen in the Soviet Union with uh, old notions of pre-revolutionary Tsarist life being swept away, or to some extent they are anyway. 
And because of the historical worldview of the party, the kind of Marxist uh, dialectic worldview um, of uh, history, um, the, uh, those who were steeped in uh, Marxist uh, scholarship, who believed that they could really read history's tea leaves correctly, um, thought that because of this, they had the right and indeed the obligation to make revolutionary decisions on behalf of the rest of society, and that some of these decisions might be hard, might be brutal, and might have uh, victims and collateral damage, but they needed to be made anyway. And this was the kind of thinking of the revolutionary who was now um, bureaucrat or minister or uh, general secretary of the party. An example of where this uh, brutal and often incompetent uh, way of operating uh, based on this um, eschatological uh, view of uh, working towards a glorious and utopian historical endpoint uh, caused immense uh, bloodshed and catastrophe would of course be collectivization. I've done several podcasts on collectivization previously, you should be able to find them if you search this um, uh, this, this uh, set of recordings um, but I won't go into it too, de- too deeply now because I'm trying to do kind of an, an overview type thing. Any kind of resistance to the party, any kind of uh, popular uh, app- disapproval of policies or any kind of uh, mass uprising could be explained uh, by the fact that pre-revolutionary ideas still dominated Russia. This is the way the party saw it, that uh, backward uh, bourgeois or even feudal ideas uh, still dominated Russia and there would be an immense learning curve for the Russian people to go through for these ideas essentially to be uh, removed from them and that the building of socialism was actually going to be a long and difficult um, uh, process. There was a kind of Stalinist way of looking at the world when people complained of hardships and shortages to sort of roll roll their eyes and say, well, of course there are hardships. We're building socialism. Of course there are difficulties. This isn't meant to be nice. It's meant to be easy. Communism is going to be the good bit, and we're going to get there. I'm not exactly sure quite when, but that's where we're going. This bit is meant to be difficult. This is a time of struggle. And communists had with them this deep sense of mission, this sense that they were the uh, interpreters of history, and they had been educated and enlightened in a way that the masses hadn't, and that if they were simply allowed to take everybody with them, uh, then there would be no, no problems. But certainly they couldn't be swayed by anything as um, primitive as popular opinion. This was another reason why uh, an economic revolution and uh, Stalin with the five-year plans needed to be accompanied by a cultural revolution. The backwardness of the Russian people, the the dominance of old Tsarist ideas such as uh, religion and feudalism and superstition and the um, methods of peasant farming all this needed to be swept away. It was impossible in the view of the Stalinists to have an economic revolution if one simply allowed old ideas to persist, that one would sabotage the other. 
And the other term uh, that was uh, one which attracted a great deal of uh, negativity was that of bourgeois or petty bourgeois. Anything that was considered to be um, counter-revolutionary or considered to be, for want of a better term, um, bad in the uh, moral reasonings of the post-revolutionary era could be written off as being bourgeois. Small trade, um, the ownership of luxuries, uh, certain kinds of fashion and dress, certain ways of, ex- of expression, certain uh, desires for privacy or for um, some kind of uh, exception, some kind of uh, privilege. All these things could be seen as bourgeois, and depending at what time and what place one was accused of being bourgeois, uh, there were a range of sanctions, and uh, none of them particularly pleasant, and some of them by 1936-37 particularly lethal. There were some ideas that died hard in Russia, or failed to die at all, and one was this notion of paternalism, that the uh, the figure of Stalin replaced neatly the, the figures of the Tsar, the little father, the Batushka. As Stalin deviated from uh, whatever democratic notions there, there ever had been in Soviet communism towards a autocratic uh, cult of personality-based rule. So the uh, traditions of paternalism um, emerged, and it wasn't simply the fact that the state propaganda created this, State propaganda obviously created a cult of personality, but it had a fairly receptive audience among Russian people who were used to thinking about a, an autocratic leader who had the nation's best interests in his mind, who could sort of hold the nation as a father cradles a baby, that kind of uh, sentiment. And within that idea, we can see how um, pre-existing traditional notions, very kind of deep um, old Russian peasant notions, meet with the uh, modern ideas of Soviet communism and um, intertwine and meld and merge and uh, create a sort of uh, hybrid concepts. Because the party viewed itself as a revolutionary vanguard as opposed to a um, more gradual kind of social democratic party, it had a very particular attitude when it came to the population at large. This idea of vanguard can be explained uh, as this. When Lenin wrote uh, What is to be done, he really articulated the notion of revolutionary vanguard. In essence, he said that Um, the population, the proletarian population in Russia was small, the peasant population was very large, the peasant population was unlikely to get with the the programme as far as socialism went uh, particularly soon, and the working classes would take a long time to organise themselves as well. The working classes would, the working class was too small to have a kind of revolutionary potential and so in, if you were going to wait, as Marx had uh, suggested, if you were going to wait for the working classes to organise themselves, to create their own institutions, 
and then overthrow capitalism, you'd be waiting for a very long time, in which time the Tsar would have figured out what the revolutionaries' cunning plans were, and either A, slung them all in jail, or B, more likely, done the sensible thing and co-opted the middle classes into government and society, and thus draining away any revolutionary potential um, from uh, the movement at all. So Lenin said, instead of waiting for the workers to figure things out for themselves and seize power, we will be a vanguard, we will seize power on their behalf. And then, once we have power and we hold it in trust on their behalf, we will use it to build the socialist society that will benefit them. And we will, in, 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 by nature, understand what that society is and should be, even if they don't, even if they don't know quite what's good enough for them, what's good for them, we will impose it on them because it is the right thing to do, because we understand history in the right way and we know what is better for the best for them in ways that they don't know for themselves at the moment. And they will eventually, when they get to uh, the communist utopia, at the end of all of this, everything will be great. And so... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So communism, the, the final goal, was a thing that was always somewhere in the future. Always something to be worked towards. And there would always be struggle in the present. And if you were to look at Stalin, Stalinist society from 1928 through to 1953 you would conclude that, that, that there was certainly struggle in the present and many obstacles uh, to overcome. When communism was meant to arrive was uh, differed depending on who you asked, whether it could be achieved in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Nobody quite knew. And the date at which communism uh, was meant to emerge would keep going being set back and back and back what would how would we know when communism is here well again this is a very difficult thing to quantify um marx didn't give much of an impression about um what communism would look like um and he it was left to subsequent theorists uh, to suggest this one of the barriers for entry to the party, and one of the things that keeps the party in an air of exclusivity, uh, is the complexities of Marxist-Leninist thinking. Party members were steeped in a vast uh, amount of complicated, esoteric and arcane uh, articles, journals, books and uh, information uh, about uh, the historical view and the philosophical view of everything from um, the development of capitalist profit to the culture of capitalist societies 
and how socialism might be built and defended in a uh, socialist state such as the Soviet Union. And the perception that developed around party members who were um, scholars of uh, Marxist-Leninism uh, and uh, the works of Stalin was that these were keepers of very particular kinds of knowledge uh, and that they were um, able to now speak the language of the new regime and use this knowledge to help navigate uh, around this complex and bewildering new ideological force that had implanted itself at the heart of what had previously been um, traditional Russian society. For those that did understand it, the principal force in history was now social class. For those who were not versed in Marxist-Leninist discourse, the idea of class was still uh, a, a prevalent one in their, um, uh, in their daily life, whether they understood class particularly well or not. Those that were true believers within the party saw Marxist-Leninist discourse as a set of scientific rules to understand society and history, much as there are scientific rules to understand the physical laws of the universe. And if these scientific rules were followed absolutely and fundamentally, they were the map to utopia, to communism, and if this didn't emerge, it was either that the, uh, the rule book was being misread or misunderstood somehow, or if this possibility was eliminated, then there must be saboteurs. When things went wrong within Soviet society, there were food shortages, housing shortages, accidents in factories, um, largely caused by um, incompetence and uh, poor planning, and a lack of any understanding, really, of basic um, uh, structures of uh, government and logistics, it was put down to um, external sabotage or internal sabotage because it couldn't possibly be that Marxist-Leninism was in some way at fault. There must be someone to blame. And this idea that there should be someone to blame, that uh, there should be an, an enemy to catch, was, uh, one, was a, a force which manifests itself in its most uh, crudest and brutal uh, during the Great Terror. But as Robert Service points out, the Great Terror is just one moment in a kind of an, an ongoing terror uh, that exists within Soviet society. And because of the singular significance of class, class uh, origin and class background is woven into all aspects of life. Uh, class identity determines uh, the availability of work, education, housing, food, and um, permits to reside in cities or to be exiled uh, to Siberia. The uh, notion of class as an explanatory factor in people's behaviour, their outlook and their levels of loyalty was uh, not dissimilar to the way in which the Gestapo in Germany factored ideas of race into um, the likelihood of criminal behaviour having taken place or the, uh, the assumption of guilt or innocence. 
Party membership in the Soviet Union was essential for advancement and for the uh, ability to acquire scarce resources. The uh, membership of the party was uh, highly desirable and those who came from bad class backgrounds or who had uh, been eliminated by being refused access to the Young Pioneers or the Komsomol found our membership of the party extremely difficult. There was um, a need to be in the party for um, personal ambition and this meant that party members um, or the party machine spent a lot of time and effort trying to uh, sift between those who are ambitious in that they wanted to participate in the building of socialism and those who were ambitious, um, who were careerists and who wanted simply advancement and privilege, uh, a arguably bourgeois notion from the point of view of the Stalinists. And it was those who were simply looking to advance themselves that generally tended to actually um, do far better within the party machinery, even though ostensibly this was discouraged. In the 20s and 30s, uh, getting into the party wasn't that easy. Um, there were all manner of checks and balances uh, to uh, make sure that this was not a, a fait accompli. Those who had supposedly bourgeois backgrounds found it very difficult um, it was exclusively in the 20s and 30s by and large for proletarians. Enrollment rules uh, made sure that workers and peasants uh, gained uh, entry to the party and in addition to that um, there were many sort of ambitious or att attempted or hopeful communists who uh, managed to be eliminated during the emissions procedure um, who were required to submit references, um, they had their social backgrounds investigated, and they went through examinations examining their political literacy, and they were routinely, they were rigorously scrutinised as to their uh, suitability. So much so that in uh, 1930 it could be said that the Communist Party was indeed a proletarian party. Um, the emphasis was to bring in uh, proletarian factory workers and to keep out uh, people with bourgeois uh, backgrounds. And the huge wave of workers um, who entered the party um, during the five-year plan um, meant that um, the, the party grew dramatically and gained people notionally of the right class background but they also gained uh, an awful lot of new members with poor levels of education who were poorly motivated uh, politically but actually were as avaricious and self-interested and um, motivated by self-advancement as uh, any of the people that the party sought to sift out. In 1933, the party suspended its admissions and uh, removed uh, unsuitable members from its books. Also, obviously, during the Great Purges, there were large numbers of members who were arrested and executed. During the 1930s, 
Um, some young party members who joined found themselves dramatically and rapidly uh, promoted to positions far beyond their experience or competence and this meant that the party itself was a, a very unstable uh, machinery for governance and one where there were frequently um, high levels of incompetence. And this uh, explains an awful lot about uh, the Soviet Union during the Stalin era. It was an era where very little seemed to work, where there were shortages of food, uh, housing, where uh, initiatives that were ostensibly designed to improve public life uh, met with uh, considerable failure, and where many uh, infrastructure projects were botched jobs that were rushed through by party men who knew very little about what they were doing but thought they could manage the situation with brute force and aggression. Following the Great Terror, when party admission reopened at the end of the 1930s, proletarian fantasies were swept aside and the idea of getting people from good class backgrounds was not nowhere near as important as getting competent and educated people in place. Stalin at this period, by this point, um, had uh, an obsession with the threat of Germany, not an irrational one, as we subsequent events tell us, and knew that uh, he was in a race against time to reinforce the structures of Soviet life to prepare for an inevitable onslaught later on. We'll try to check in on this topic and look a little bit more at um, the work, inner workings of the party. There's a lot to be said on this subject. Um, so stay tuned in the next uh, week or so. I'll try to update this one. Um, anyway, thanks very much for listening. I hope you found this interesting and I'll catch you on the next podcast. By all means, um, give say hi on the Explaining History Facebook page. Uh, we've got some great chats on there. And um, also, if you can, give us a good uh, thumbs up on iTunes. That would be very helpful. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye.